You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We know that there's a direct correlation between gender equality measured on multiple indexes and the stability of investments. And so while the data is more robust at the international level on these issues, we know that it's going to play out at the state level in the United States as well. Are you getting the attention you deserve from your financial advisor? Call our partner, Edelman Financial Engines at 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash hermoney. As a hermoney listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan to help you decide. Hey, everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. So I just want to start with some disturbing statistics today. of allocated investment capital is managed by men. Only 41 of the Fortune 500 companies, of which there are, yes, 500, are led by women. Just 14% of private equity fund managers are women and less than 3% of venture capital is directed toward enterprises run by women. And yet, we know that when more women are involved in financial decision-making in households, in governments, with major corporations, with investment funds, money is managed more efficiently, more effectively, investments are more profitable, And companies and governments make decisions that better benefit individual investors and the economy overall. This this is what our guests today refer to as the XX edge or the double X edge. Patience Marame Ball and Ruth Shaver are the authors of the book, The XX Edge, Unlocking Higher Returns and Lower Risk, where they lay out how the field of gender-focused investing is about to be flipped and how women will be placed at the center of investing as agents and actors. And part of this is because women are stepping into more of our power every day, and we are ready for a change. But it's also because decision makers in major corporations and perhaps even some governments are waking up. They have seen that gender inclusive teams are 21% more likely to see outperformance in profitability. They've seen that female CFOs deliver a 6% bump in profits and an 8% stock performance bump compared to men. And they know that companies with female founders perform 63% better than those with all male teams. And I could go on, but I'm gonna let our guests take it from here. Patience comes to us with more than two decades of investment experience across capital markets, including debt and equity financing, large-scale infrastructure, distressed assets, and venture stage opportunities. She is the founder and CEO of Women of the World Endowment, an investment nonprofit focused on centralizing women as economic change makers. And Ruth Shaber, MD, is the founder and president of the Tara Health Foundation, which promotes health, well being, and opportunities for women and girls through 
evidence-informed programs. She is also the co-founder and board chair of Reaventures, which is a group of foundations and investors that collaborate to bring new types of capital and enterprise to the field of reproductive health in the United States. Patience, Ruth, welcome. It's terrific to be here. Jean, it is so wonderful to be here with you. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Well, thank you for coming along for the ride. So I have to ask, the two of you have had extremely different career paths. How did you come to work together? And Patience, let's start with you. So as much as Ruth and I have had different career paths, we have found ourselves in rooms that are fairly similar in composition. Ruth, in the medical field, found herself in many rooms where she was one of very few women and sometimes the only woman. And similar to myself, when I was doing investing first in infrastructure, then in distressed assets work, and then finally investing in financial institutions, those rooms didn't have very many women as well. And so we came from that background, yet we also understood that the power of women like ourselves was an untapped opportunity. And so we both started working on this focus on women from different angles. For myself, starting in 2008, 2009, at the other end of the, or while we're going through the last financial crisis, and Christine Lagarde made the statement that if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, uh, things might have been different. We might not have had the subprime crisis that we had in 2008. I started wondering what might have been different if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Brothers and Sisters, so having gender-diverse teams at the table. Ruth, on the other hand, I think Ruth will explain a little bit more, at the same time was founding Terra Health Foundation and dialing into the opportunity of providing better health and also investing assets through women and into women-focused strategies. And so we came at it from very different viewpoints, met three years ago and fell in love. And I think I (laughs) literally fell in love. Ruth had, during our first meeting, we had a breakfast and it was a breakfast in Italy, in a little town called Bryan, Italy. The town will always have a special place in our hearts. But at that breakfast, Ruth brought with her a systems map, something she was collaborating on with a few other people where she was mapping the power of women in different parts of our economies, what would need to be different, what would need to change for women to be centralized. At the same time, I was building Women of the World Endowment, which is focused on centralizing women as solution drivers, not just beneficiaries and victims. During that breakfast, we realized that there was much that we really liked and appreciated about each other's work and that there was a lot we could do together. Maybe I'll pass it on to Ruth. Yeah, I was going to say, Ruth, pick it up from there and bring us up to date on the last three years. How did you come together? Do you guys say the XX edge or do you say the double X edge? We say the XX edge. So, Jean, thank you for the opportunity. And boy, I couldn't have pitched the XX edge any better than you did in your opening comments. So thank you. You really understand what this book is all about. So just to brief background on myself, you know, in my career in healthcare, I was both a clinician and also an executive at Kaiser Permanente. And I had the opportunity to really understand one of the most complex systems there is, and that's healthcare and the human body. And what I learned in my career there is that is what it takes to translate research and evidence into actual practice, what we call evidence-based medicine. But when I launched my career in philanthropy and impact investing, 
I was very interested in bringing all of those skills, what it takes to be a systems engineer and understand evidence into the practice of philanthropy and investing, which frankly is really sorely lacking any scientific rigor whatsoever. And so when I started the Tara Health Foundation, it was with the intention of being 100% mission aligned. And I was searching and craving data and evidence that would help me invest better. And frankly, in the field of gender, there was very, very little. And so I went about trying to help making landscape assessments and understanding what evidence was out there and starting to create the tools and resources that we needed to enhance that evidence. And that was around the time that Patience and I met three years ago. And that sort of analytic framework of and scientific rigor was one that really resonated with patients as well. So I think from our very first conversation, we both approached the field of gender investing with a more robust framework than had been there by many before. And I also want to just say, though, that there had been quite a few folks who had been in this space before we dove into writing this book. And then we were very grateful for the work that they had done. And I don't want to make it sound like it wasn't an important part of this story. But for the three years that we've been collaborating, I think what Patience and I have been so excited about is our different backgrounds and the fact that my background in healthcare and in science, understanding that women, when they're centralized in decision-making, whether it's for their families or for their communities or for their governments, that they are more efficient, they're more collaborative, they take a more longer holistic view of balancing outcomes and they understand the risks to enterprises and to communities that are somewhat different than how men see those same things. So when we're looking at the gender differences between women and men, when it comes to financial decision-making in particular, Ruth, I mean, are those the differences, the things that you just hit on, more collaborative, more analytical, longer-term view, Or are there other things in the mix and why do they work? So first of all, I want to stress that these are traits, that these are trends and that all behavior is on a bell-shaped curve. And so there are plenty of- Wait, before you go further, what do you mean by that? So we talk about inherent gender differences between men and women, and they're not absolutes. So if women tend to be a certain way and men tend to be a certain way, it doesn't mean that there aren't men who behave more in ways that we think of as being more characteristic of women and vice versa. So we talk about a bell-shaped curve. It means that characteristics, there are outliers, and then there's the mean and where most people are closer to the mean in a bell-shaped curve. And when we talk about gender and finance, Women tend to be more collaborative. They tend to be more willing to look to others to help them. They tend to have less ego at stake. And those are traits that show up not only in business and in finance, but in many different industries, in many different places, in community farming, in healthcare, in education. In terms of risk, women tend to be more interested in minimizing short-term risk. And we see those sorts of traits play out, for instance, in gambling literature, that men tend to be more interested in short-term returns or they're more susceptible to social pressures to take chances. And we see that in the numbers of men who are more likely to gamble. Women tend to be more interested in the long-term outcomes. But there's another category of reasons why we think that women are so essential to financial planning and financial decision-making. And that's the context that we find ourselves in. 
This is also work that was very well established in the healthcare literature that we know that when you recruit the people who are most impacted by the problems you're trying to solve, if you bring them to the innovation table, you actually get more sustainable solutions, you get more efficient solutions. And in the case of the, the most pressing problems facing our economy, the things that an investor should be looking to invest in, whether it's climate change and mitigating the risks of food insecurity or climate migration, or thinking about new ways to approach the care economy now that we've had this, this look at what it takes to actually support people properly in the workplace, healthcare and, and all the things that COVID showed us, education. So all the places where innovation is needed, all the problems that we're trying to solve, women tend to be closer to those problems because they're either the consumers or because they're the essential workforce or because of the ones that are most impacted by those problems. When I wrote Women With Money a few years ago, one of the statistics that I cited was that women more than men tend to be more willing to use their financial resources to create the change that we want to see in the world, right? And that ended up in my chapter on giving, right, on charitable giving. But it seems to be driving the investment decisions that we make as well, and specifically the growth of ESG investing that we've talked about on this show. Patience, when you talk about this new paradigm of gender-focused investing, what exactly is that? How is it different than ESG investing? And is it really happening now, or is it something that you think we'll see in the coming years? Yeah, so Jin, thank you for that question and for phrasing it that way, where you are bringing in the other fields of investing, ESG, impact investing, etc. So just one more thing around why women tend to succeed in asset allocation rooms, in investment rooms. And I think one of the reasons you have articulated really well, which is that money is likely to be allocated to things that it deliver, yes, financial returns, but more than that. Women will look for instances where their money is going to do more than one thing. And there's no reason why money cannot do more than one thing. We can make really good returns, but have our money working for social returns as well. And that's the point you just made about how women tend to invest their capital with a differentiated view, which means you're going to build a differentiated portfolio. Women are really good researchers around because we are more risk aware. We have low ego we don't have a problem with looking at what else don't we know before we make decisions. And that is a really strong thing in any investment room. Now to the question you posed about whether gender-focused investing is any different from any other investing. My view is it is not. When I built Banking on Women, which is now a multi-billion dollar business for an organization I worked with before, the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, what we did was to, we first built the business case for it. And the business case for it is not any different from any other type of investing. We noticed that, and here the business case was mostly focused on financial institutions. We noticed a number of things. One, gender-focused portfolios, debt portfolios, had much better performance when compared to, you know, the norm, the control group, because women tend to be better repairs of debt. When banks are focused on women as customers, they actually end up making higher fees because women tend to have loyalty 
once you get a woman as a client, it's highly likely that she's going to come to you for a mortgage loan, for a car loan, for a school loan, whatever it is that whatever her needs might be, because trust and relationship are very important to women as well. And so there's this opportunity to make more money. Now, whether you call that making more money, whether you call that ESG or gender-focused investing or whatever, I think when we do that, we actually miss opportunity that is female. The opportunity that is female is simply a business opportunity. Yes, we look at certain things differently, but ultimately, if you're an investor who's looking for profitability, you are going to make that profitability regardless of what you call it. So my view is that I tend to not necessarily want to make gender-focused investing any different than any other investing. And traditionally, gender lens investing has been about making investments that benefit women and girls. Whereas gender-focused investing is bringing in analysis, centralizing women in their analysis of decision-making so that you actually are taking advantage of both the potential for, you know, lower risk in your portfolio and higher performance in your portfolio. So how can we invest in that idea today? Our sponsor, as you heard at the top of the show, is Edelman Financial Engines. But before that, Fidelity Investments was our sponsor for a very long time. They helped us launch this show. We continue to be very grateful to them. And they have a fund that invests in companies that are led by women and probably mangling the complete definition of that fund, but that's the idea, right? It's a women's leadership fund. How is this different than that? And if I want to buy what you're selling, how do I buy that now? You know, it's not that complicated. And that's one of the beauties of what we're proposing, that the fact that there are already big financial institutions that are starting to screen and look for funds that have women on the leadership team or investing in public companies that have women in leadership, women on their boards, those are all great signs. And once again, it's not about absolutes. It's not about men versus women. It's about gender inclusivity and gender diversity. So looking for teams that have diversity more broadly is also really important. So those are some ways to get started. So I applaud your sponsors for looking at that. There are other things that investors can do. You can be looking at the types of products and services that the companies that you're investing in make. And are they targeting half the population, women. And in many cases, many of the companies that are creating new products and new innovation, they actually need to be prioritizing women because while women make up 50% of the population, they make over 75% of consumer decisions often for their families. So they should be prioritizing the female market. And that means, have they done focus groups? Have they brought women into their design team? Not at the leadership teams, but also in their design team. So as they're thinking about their products, have they tested it out with the female markets? And that's true for financial services too, that there's a great statistic that the number of women who leave their financial advisors when their husband dies is yes. off the charts because they're so dissatisfied with how well that particular relationship has addressed their own needs. So at the micro level and in the individual client level, all the way up to screening big companies for women in leadership, products and services, and then, then there's all kinds of opportunities to look at companies and how well they treat their workforce. And this isn't just about treating the female workforce, but as we know, if you have good benefits, good healthcare coverage, if you look at recruiting, 
women, you're going to also make really important changes for how you recruit your entire workforce. So men benefit too. And those are things that you should be screening for, that investors should be screening for too in their companies to make sure that they're recruiting the right talent and that they're doing everything they can to retain that talent once they come on board. Yeah. And if I could just add, once again, applaud Fidelity and any other institutional investor for setting up indices, funds that they've created that are women in leadership funds. And that's the easy one, right? Women in the C-suite, women on boards. But to Ruth's point, it's so much better when you go deeper than that, because then you're taking into account even, you know, a wider breadth of opportunity to be successful, both in terms of financial returns and impact returns. And so beyond any of your asset managers looking at investing in a fidelity gender-focused fund, I would say that there are opportunities to actually go beyond that and look at who is doing the asset allocation. So we are currently in the process of looking at these gender-focused funds and actually trying to look at when you look at the asset management firm that has created it. So Fidelity itself, have they looked at themselves and looked at who is making investment decisions in their own. So all of those things are really important. That, and that's what this book is really talking about, that it is not about these discrete sort of off to the side products that you can create. It is an all of the above review. As an investor, you need to look at who is in the asset allocation room. You know, as they design that product, who was in the design room for that product, the index itself, because who is in there will determine how much of what really matters is included in the construction of that product. And so all of it is really important. But then the tough part is how do you do it? And it is highly likely that for most people, it's way too much work. And having an easy place to go to is one of those things that is really meaningful. And so we have in our portfolio, for instance, an entity called Ethos ESG that we sit on the board of And we are influencing them on making sure that women are embedded fully into their ESG screening tools as change makers. Similarly, there's an other organization that uh, Terra Health Foundation has funded called As You Sow, which allows the same thing. So there are these ways, there are these tools where you can literally put in the ticker symbol of whatever target investment you want to invest in and be able to check how much they're on the right side of a number of things, including gender, climate, racial justice, all kinds of other intersectional themes. And so the part that we do in addition to also investing is really working with these two developers to make it easy for asset allocators to do the work of investing on the right side of sustainability. Thank you, Patience, for getting us to the tactics there, too, because I think that's the hard part. As you point out, sometimes it's hard to just know, okay, I've got a chunk of money. I want to put it to work. Where do I put it? The other important point, and Ruth made this a, a couple of minutes ago, is that the statistic that makes more financial advisors quake in their boots than any other is the fact that when the male spouse dies, Upwards of 70% of women leave the financial advisor. They leave the financial advisor, which is a great time to ask the question, when is it time to break up with your financial advisor? When is it time to just get a second opinion? 
It comes down to this. Are you getting the attention you deserve or are you settling? Our partner, Edelman Financial Engines, they believe that you should not settle. They model more than 38,000 securities each month to stress test your portfolio through thousands of scenarios, just like the volatility that the market is experiencing today. And you can call 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash hermoney. As a hermoney listener, you'll receive a complimentary financial plan to help you decide. I am talking with Patience Ball and Ruth Schaber, authors of The XX Edge. I want to talk about how women impact the bottom line. We all know that problems arise when women are not included. For example, I know you guys have some data on what happens when women aren't included in product development from the outset. Can you explain? So we have some stories that I think really elaborate. One of the ones that's the most well-known and we certainly talk about in the book is around car safety and particularly the creation of crash test dummies in the 70s. The decision was made, crazy, that there would only be one prototype crash test dummy, which was going to be the average size man. And this was definitely an enhancement over what came before, which was that I suspect graduate students were the ones who were put into cars and tested on how their bodies responded to crashes. So so having a dummy was definitely an enhancement, but still having it be a prototype man and not taking into consideration the difference in women's anatomy or, or pregnant women's anatomy or children's anatomy was definitely an oversight. And as it turns out, the creation of airbags, which was also an enhancement in cars safety were not designed for women and they weren't designed for small people in general. And it ended up not only causing loss of life and women were disproportionately killed in car accidents in the early days of airbags. So as a result of this oversight, and I think cost savings was the intention was to just have one prototype, not only were lives lost and women were disproportionately injured in the early airbag installations, but also cost the car manufacturers a ton of money. They had to go back and create all the workarounds and redevelopment of their safety products. And it wasn't just airbags. It was also in seatbelt restraints and headrests and all kinds of things that were impacted by their lack of thinking about women's bodies. So there was an obvious design flaw that impacted both cost and safety. Another example we talk about in the book is in healthcare in heart disease, the early days of understanding the impact of heart disease, which is the number one killer of men and women, not just men. Most of the early research was done on men and largely because women have never been prioritized in research studies historically because there's always the risk that they could be pregnant. And so they, nobody wanted to take the risk of exposing them to things. And, and so most, most medical research over the centuries has been on men. And at the time of a lot of focus was being paid on how to mitigate the heart disease impact and cardiovascular disease in general, a lot of assumptions were made about men's bodies and men's disease that were extrapolated to women. And it wasn't until there was women's leadership at the NIH and when women were brought in as researchers to the Women's Health Initiative and and really took over the majority of the health scientists that were addressing a fundamental women's health issue, heart disease, that we started to learn quite a bit more about how women experience heart disease and, and the types of treatments that were appropriate for men and women. So it's not just about 
this niche of taking care of women. It's that by having gender diverse scientists, we were able to improve the field of heart disease across the board for everybody. So once again, it's not just men versus women, it's gender diversity raises all boats. Sorry, if I could come in here sure. and give an example that is very real to all of us right now, uh, the pandemic and how it is that we're able to be now out and about because of the vaccines that have made all the difference. Well, the whole ability to get us to where we are starts with the genome project and you know how there was quite a bit of study around DNA and a lot of men chose to study DNA because a lot of grant funding and all kinds of capital were going towards that and less money was going towards RNA. But quite a number of women who had conviction decided that that's what they were going to study. So it starts with Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Chapantier who worked together to develop the science around CRISPR. And then, you know, that was the platform that then allowed the study of RNA and with doctors like Dr. Kariko and Kizmekia Kobert at NIH to then be able to come in and develop mRNA, which allowed for the development of vaccine. A number of things you notice around this is that even though, just like in venture capital, in scientific development, less than 3% of grant capital goes to women scientists, women PIs. And regardless of the fact that we know that the, part of what they study, the innovations that come out of their labs are just as life-saving. And coming out of this pandemic, we hope that this is one data point that nobody loses sight of because we're able to come out of lockdowns because of vaccines, because these women have been committed to studying RNA and then ending up with mRNA, which made it possible for us to have vaccines. So this is a conversation around not just, you know, what has historically happened. It is very much a conversation about what is happening today that is not the right thing to do. So on that note, as we're talking about what's happening today, we are recording this podcast on Monday after the Roe v. Wade decision came down. And over the weekend, I got a pushed out email newsletter from an economist I follow, a guy named Larry Kotlikoff, who said economics is where we need to be looking, the economic ramifications of this and the investing that will be done as a result of this decision, you can't underestimate the seismic shift that will happen. Catherine and I have published and continue at Her Money to publish statistics about how devastating an economic impact this will have on women in terms of our careers and our healthcare and our lives. But from an investor's perspective, patients, what do you see? I, Ruth is the doctor between the two of us, and she will speak to the more healthcare-related response to this. My view is that more than ever, there's an opportunity for us to invest in new ways of providing women with the access that they need. I think technological innovations are going to lead us to a place where, and we already are there, where it's not impossible for people to get access to what they need, whether it's access to an abortion without actually crossing state lines. So that's, that's one. We will have innovations and we already have innovations 
if they don't make it illegal for people to even access that. So, you know, there's always the if, right? But the innovations are going to take us there. And investment capital, I think, is beginning to realize that it has a role to play in that as well. The other economic part, I think, comes from corporations recognizing that they too have an opportunity. It's an opportunity, really, at the end of the day, to make sure that they are indicating to their workforce the right to be able to be a full citizen, whether it's at home or at work, is one that they respect as well. You cannot have part of your workforce not able to bring their full selves to work because of something like this. And so you're absolutely right. I think corporates have a role to play and what they will do in terms of greater investment in healthcare is really important. But I'm truly excited about the innovations and the investment in innovation. And then finally, before I hand it over to you, Ruth, I do want to talk about investors and what investors will do with with their capital beyond innovations. But really, when we think about our portfolios, how they're constructed, what's inside our portfolios, we need to be mindful of the fact that we want to put our capital towards companies that are on the right side of giving women the opportunity to be full citizens, the opportunity to be solution drivers and, and active participants in solving today's most pressing problems, not just the beneficiaries and victims, as these laws that are coming down have us believe that women are. Ruth, please take it away. Thanks, Patience. So, Jean, you ask a really important question, obviously a really timely one, when we think about why is access to reproductive health a material risk to business enterprises? So let's look at it, particularly at the public company level. And you may have noticed over the weekend and all last week, there have been over 450 companies that have signed on to a public website called Don't Ban Equality, which full disclosure, that's, that is work that Tara Health Foundation and ReAventures has been supporting. And the reason we're supporting it is that we fully understand the business case for companies to support access to reproductive health. And we know that when your workforce can't get health care, locally in their communities that they're going to be compromised. And particularly when you look at access to abortion and other reproductive health services, and these go hand in hand. So many of the states that are interested in banning abortion are also the ones that are compromising on maternal health benefits and postpartum benefits and access to contraception, access to health education. And so when women can't plan the size of their families when they need services and they don't can't get it locally, they have to take more time off work, they have to travel, it's more expensive, they're distracted in the workforce, and it's not just women, it's their partners too. And so men are also compromised when they can't get that healthcare and particularly abortion services locally. And we know that when men and women of reproductive age, when they're surveyed and asked, would you go work for a company that has its headquarters in a state that's banning abortion? They say no. Mm-hmm. Over 80% of women say that they would not move to a state that does not have full health care. And this is, means that companies are going to lose out on top talent, that they're not going to be able to really perform. And that's what the XX Edge is about, that having women in the workforce is essential, not just at the leadership level. So that's at the business 
enterprise level. But at the government level, this is a huge risk for state governments as well. There's a lot of interesting research that shows that if you just look at the abortion restrictions that are already on the books, so this doesn't take into account the ones that are likely to come down now that the Supreme Court has ruled, there's at least $3 billion in state revenue that's being missed out on because of the restrictions on abortion that exist now. So certainly in the United States and looking at the state level, it's important when you're making decisions about where companies should I invest in and where are their headquarters and how, what's going to be the impact on their workforce. But also certainly at the international level, this is important. And when you're making decisions about government bonds or treasury bonds and where do I want to invest in private equity or debt at a country level, that we know that there's a direct correlation between gender equality measured on multiple indexes and the stability of investments. And so while the data is more robust at the international level on these issues, we know that it's going to play out at the state level in the United States as well. We will leave it there with a big old sigh. Well, let me, can I add one thing, Gina, to this is that the reason why we care so much about public companies coming out and expressing their concern from a business point of view is that we do know that in many ways, whether you like it or not, that corporations are our new civil society and that speaking out on, on behalf of their workforce and their communities and their customers is actually a bigger driver of culture change and social change now than our government policies. And that if corporations where all the money is and the economy is can lead us to a different place, that I think that the government will follow. So that is my hope for this issue. To make the same point, but put it differently, is that what has traditionally been called externalities, so you know, management would not care about it because it's an externality, whether it's climate, racial justice, women's rights not being observed, etc. All those things were external to companies' well-being. There's no such thing as externalities anymore. And if anything, the last two years have shown us that, right? Whether it was the racial justice protests, whether it's the rights under all being taken away, whether it's climate resilience, whatever it is, everything is impacting businesses. And businesses have to be aware that at the end of the day, that means impacting the bottom line. So they don't have a choice anymore. Nope. It's time to vote with your dollars, right? No matter if you're choosing where to live or where to work or what to buy or how to invest, that's where the power is, at least a lot of it a lot of it right now. Patience Ball, Ruth Shaver. The book is The XX Edge. How do we find more information on this book and on both of you? Well, the first place to go is to our website, thexxedge.com, and you can find lots of information. You can find out how to order the book through Simon & Schuster, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, bulk books if you'd like to buy them for all of your friends, particularly your male colleagues would be wonderful. And if you're interested in getting in touch with us, please do so through our website. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here, both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jean. Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that understands that financial freedom doesn't just happen at a single point, but rather at many different stages of life. That's why BCU is here today for your tomorrow with support available at every stage of your financial journey. And you can learn more about eligibility to join BCU at bcu.org. Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. 
Hey, Jean, that was great. I got to get a copy of that book and read it. I loved what they had to say. I like how they're approaching it. I mean, I like the data. I like the analysis. I like the fact, for lack of a better word, that it's factual, right? These are not just theses. These are truths about what happens when women are involved in running the show, all the different kinds of shows and the progress that gets made when women are involved in running the show. And you can't turn away from that if your aim when you're investing is to make money, right? It helps. It will help you make more money. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I just love the data. Like I found myself when I was putting together this script actually saying like, yes, like thankfully, thankfully we have this data now. Thankfully we know how effective women leaders can be and women decision makers can be. Because I think for many years it was just a broken record of women trying to say, well, women can do anything that men can do. Right. And now it's like we actually have numbers to say, not only can we do it, we can also do it better. Yeah. And I loved the point that Patience made about it doesn't have to be an or when it comes to putting your money to work. You know, we've been sort of talking about this for a while as we've had conversations about ESG and impact investing, but you can do well and do good. There's really no doubt to that anymore. And so particularly now when we have so many issues facing this country, why not do well and do good at the same time? I found myself thinking during that conversation, particularly during the latter part of it, that I'm going to pick up the phone and have a conversation with my financial advisor about how are we screening? How are we screening to make sure that we're putting this capital to work to create the world as we want to see it? I love that phrasing. Yes. How do we want to see it and how can we shape it to get it there? Yep. Absolutely. More to come on all of that. Let's take some questions. Our question today is a long one. It comes to us from Rachel. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. Thank you so much for everything you do to help women. I religiously listen to your podcast each week, and I can honestly say it has changed my life. Oh, well, that's very... I gotta stop there for one second, Rachel. That's so nice. Thank you very much for saying that, and thank you for listening. Yes, that is a beautiful thing to hear. Thank you. She says... At 45, I'm a late bloomer in life and only became financially savvy about three years ago with the help of podcasts like Your Money and Books. Unfortunately, I'm terribly behind in where I think I should be at this stage of my life, but I still have big goals for the future that I hope to accomplish. This year, I paid off $37,000 of crippling credit card debt. I have $11,000 saved in a money market fund for an emergency, and I'm hoping to get it to $18,000 by October, which would cover six months of emergency savings. I only have about $100,000 in my 401k because I started late, but I'm now investing 15% of my paycheck, which includes a 4% company match. I have $20,000 in student loans for my master's degree, but in five years, I might be able to get that canceled due to public service loan forgiveness. My salary is $103,000. I'm married, but we keep our finances separate as my husband is an artist with unpredictable income. I just want to say, I hear you there. She goes on to say, (laughs) I desperately want to own a home. 
All of my friends own real estate and I feel left behind. I live in New York City where it is extremely difficult to buy due to the real estate prices. At the moment, a two-bedroom co-op in the outer boroughs is about 300,000. I need two bedrooms to accommodate my hybrid work. I did the research and for a co-op in the area I'm interested in, you need a 20% down payment plus closing costs. That comes to around 72,000. Plus, you need to show you have six to 12 months in savings in an emergency fund. I would like to be able to do this in five years time by the time I turn 50, but I don't know if I can do that in so little time without a massive pay increase. I've been trying to get a higher paying job, but I'm having no luck. Once I fund the emergency fund, I want to go all out on the house savings. Should I invest this money instead so that it will grow or put it in bonds or a CD? My 401k has tanked in the last few months, so I'm wary of investing it. Eventually, I want to retire or at least live full-time in Western Massachusetts where I can buy a house for approximately the same $300,000, but I wouldn't need that 20% down payment. Is it stupid for me to even try to save for the co-op considering my circumstances, or should I just try to find a remote job and buy a house in Massachusetts one day? The salaries in NYC are much higher, as you know, than any job I could find in this area, even if I could find one in my field. Most of the jobs I'm applying to are hybrid, and I would have to be in the city for at least part of the week. Maybe I messed up too much in my youth and I can never own a home. Thank you so much for your help. Thank you so much for your question, Rachel. And yeah, I think we can get you to the point where you can own a home. And I first want you to stop beating yourself up, right? You have done a tremendous thing in paying off that $37,000 of credit card debt. And the big question that I have for you is in your letter, you say, this year I paid off $37,000 of crippling credit card debt. How did you do that? Because whatever magic you used to funnel your resources into paying off that debt, that's the magic that's going to get you to a down payment and get you there faster than you think. So if you took the same amount of money, the $37,000, and you doubled it, well, you're at your $72,000 that you need for a down payment, right? And maybe this year was a bit of an anomaly because of COVID. And so you were able to save a little bit more and spend a little bit less. In that case, maybe it takes three years, but you definitely get there within your five-year time horizon. The other thing that I would say, well, actually, I have more than one thing to say here. Keep pursuing that public service loan forgiveness on your master's degree loans, just make sure that you're actually on track. There's a very specific process, as I'm sure that you know, for public service loan forgiveness. Even if you were on hiatus with your payments during the pandemic, the months that transpired during that hiatus counted toward public service loan forgiveness. So I want you to look into it and I want you to have a better answer than I might be able to get that canceled. I want you to know that you are on track to getting that canceled and then just continue 
on your income-based plan as it goes so that you know that that'll be wiped away and you don't have to worry about trying to make additional headway on that. The next thing I want you to look at is this husband with the unpredictable income. Even people who have unpredictable incomes have the ability to level their incomes to some degree, have the ability to look back a year, two years, and see what sort of money they were bringing in historically. Try to get to a place where you can figure your husband's finances to whatever degree he can contribute into this home buying picture because I'm assuming that he's going to live there with you. And for that reason, he should contribute in whatever way he's able to. Finally, as far as where you should put the money that you're amassing in the near future, in the next couple of years, you should keep funding your 401k despite the fact that it has tanked in the last few months. Everybody's 401k has tanked in the last few months. But the investments that you make while the markets are at these current levels, these are the ones that are actually going to make you significant money when the markets rebound. So keep buying, keep grabbing those matching dollars. They are still the best return that you are ever going to get on your money. Don't get off track there. But I would say take the money that you are putting away for that home fund and either put it in CDs that roll over fairly rapidly so that you can grab these interest rate hikes as they happen or put it in a money market fund or a high interest rate savings account. Put the money somewhere where as interest rates ratchet up, and I was looking at interest rates just this weekend, there are interest rates out there on high-yield savings accounts at 1%, at 1.25%. They're available and they're going to get better. Just make sure that you continue to keep your money in one of those places. Last word, Western Massachusetts is your goal. Then start looking for jobs in Western Massachusetts now. You never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to turn. And Talk to your current employer about the opportunity for remote work. Even if you have to come back to New York one day a month to be in the office, it could be economically worth it for you to move to Massachusetts in the shorter term rather than in the longer term. Catherine, this was a long question with a lot of different parts. Do you think I got them all? Yeah, I do. I do. I think also the path to home ownership never seems easy. I think particularly in a place like New York, that 20% down payment looms very, very large for many people. So, you know, I think go back to what you said about how she managed to pay down that much credit card debt. You know, she clearly has it in her to save for the most important, bigger life things. And this is just in that same category. Yeah. Today, I read a headline about yet another company that was shutting down its hybrid office because hybrid offices, as they said, are the worst, right? Either everybody has to be on Zoom or nobody has to be on Zoom, I think is going to perhaps be the way of the world. And 
I think remote opportunities are going to be here to stay. So I would keep looking and I would talk to your current employer about the opportunity to go remote. Nobody wants to lose a valued employee right now. Nobody. It is just way, way, way too hard to hire. So one thing that you didn't tell us, Rachel, in your letter was what you do. And I wish I had that information because maybe it would help me have some additional thoughts. But I think you're going to get your home. I hope that you'll let us know when you do. And lots of luck with all of that. Definitely. Thank you so much, Jean. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, let's talk about rage quitting, which is essentially leaving a job in a stressful moment without crafting an exit strategy, giving notice, or getting another job first. It is not common, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. FlexJob says about 15% of people think about rage quitting and 4% actually do it. At HerMoney.com, we've got some proactive steps you can take before you rage quit your job to help ensure that you find the right role from the start. Again, according to FlexJob, 68% of those people who've recently quit their jobs did not have another one lined up. Instead, they quit, they tapped their emergency funds or used a side hustle in order to make ends meet until they landed another job. If that sounds familiar, let's take a pause before we find ourselves another opportunity all too quickly. First, you gotta learn about any companies that you apply to. Don't apply blindly just because you see a job posting. Start by following a company's leaders or employees on LinkedIn and checking out what they talk about. Then look up business review sites like Glassdoor and Salary.com to see what current and former employers have to say about working there. This can give you a sense of how a business operates, which can either be encouraging or can tell you to move on to the next possibility. Pay special attention to signs that companies may have toxic cultures. According to the FlexJob survey, almost two-thirds of people quit their jobs due to what they said was a toxic environment. Some signs of this include poor leadership, where leaders have no appreciation or respect for workers, and employees may be under a good deal of stress. The company may also suffer from a lack of vision, where employees don't know what they're doing or why they're doing it. This can very quickly lead to burnout. Also, watch out for high turnover. Although it's not easy to tell when this is a factor, if you've been casually looking for a job for a few months and tend to see the same companies come up over and over again, could be a sign, just saying. Lastly, look to see how current employees share company details. What are they saying about the people they work for? Just like the saying goes that children are mirrors of their parents, employees are reflections of their organizational cultures and whether or not there's an alignment between what leaders say compared with what they do. Happy, dedicated employees are a sign that all is working in sync. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Patience Ball and Ruth Schaber for joining us to talk about the future of investing for women and how we can all find those higher returns we've been wanting. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. 
We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.